Welcome to Waves of Change podcast. I'm your host, Lizzie Lara. Welcome, friends, to another episode of Waves of Change podcast. I'm so happy that you're with us. Today, I'm interviewing Bruce Gordon, who is the founder of EcoFlight. And what EcoFlight does is take people up on small aircrafts to give them an aerial perspective. Um, and they conduct educational programs to encourage environmental stewardship. I love the, just the innovative idea that EcoFlight is. And I think when we think about climate change, what we are going to need to solve climate change is innovative ideas. And I love that EcoFlight is one of them. Bruce Gordon, I feel like, is a treasure trove of really interesting stories. And we just um, skimmed the surface on this interview. But I hope that you enjoy um, hearing him speak about what they're doing at EcoFlight and uh, the impact that they have had thus far and his thoughts and ideas as they're entering in their 20th anniversary. So I will let you get to it. This is my interview with Bruce Gordon. Well, Bruce, thank you so much for joining today. Um, wanted to kick off by allowing you to introduce yourself and your organization and um, your mission. Yeah, my name is Bruce Gordon, and I'm the founder of an organization called EcoFlight. And we're a small nonprofit. And our mission, in a nutshell, is to educate and advocate for the environment using small airplanes. And we do this and accomplish our mission by flying political decision makers, media representatives, concerned citizens, scientists, you name it, anybody that uh, has a need to get the overall picture uh, about an issue concerning the environment. Very cool. And I'd love to hear of how you thought of this idea of EcoFlight. Well, it just sort of came about in many ways. Um, for years, I was working with a gentleman many, many years ago and sort of invented the notion of conservation flying. And uh, this really took hold and turned it into a nonprofit. And, you know, what we do is get people up in a small airplane, looking at the issues, giving it the big picture perspective. And these days, I'm really working hard at, at trying not to, uh, trying to let people know that what I want them to do is not not look out the left side of the window or not look out the right side of the window, proverbially. I want them looking at the landscape. I want them looking at the land and saying, well, that's important and this is what I care about and whatever side of the spectrum you fall on to educate yourself and then advocate for what you care about. So basically we're an educational outfit. And uh, through the years, it's, it's a uh, grown to be uh, a way that we can re really distribute information and get a bigger audience rather than just putting five people in an airplane. Uh, we target the media at any chance we get. We want to reach more people all the time. We have people now working in a media department that do social media, which I understand is quite popular. I'm still trying <laughs> to figure that one out. But uh, we produce videos, and especially during the time of COVID, we uh, were very active with our videos. We, uh, and we, we work with over 300 organizations, conservation organizations throughout the world and uh, bring the power and the gift of flight to them. And uh, years ago, um, you know, being a active member of uh, the conservation community and being uh, 
personally a climber and getting out in the outdoors and the guy named Rick Ridgway, a famous mountaineer said it very well the other day that he and Chenard and Doug Tompkins were doing all these great adventures, but uh, they really said, I think it was uh, Chenard said to him, he says, you know, when you're out in these places, you need to protect these places that you, that you play in, that you work in. And I think that's what's happened with myself, being a, a pilot, getting my, uh, my pilot's license through the VA, because I had gotten drafted way back when in, during the Vietnam deal. And uh, I got my VA to pay for the flying. And that became a vehicle for me to see what I want to do with my life. And uh, working with this other gentleman whose love of nature and flying were really, uh, you know, pretty, pretty intense and taking the concept. And uh, we are now, you know, celebrating our 20th year at EcoFlight. And I've been doing conservation flying even longer. That's awesome. It makes so much sense when you're thinking about conservation that um, seeing it from an aerial perspective, you know, is so needed in order to really understand the situation and what's going on. Yeah, it's really, I mean, a, a flight I did yesterday here in the Roaring Fork Valley in Colorado, uh, we were looking at a river, one of the few undammed rivers that we have mm -hmm. in Colorado. And uh, it's called the Crystal River right outside the town of Carbondale, small town. And it's really interesting because we're trying to pre, uh, protect that with wild and scenic and the community is behind it and it takes a, a real consensus of the stakeholders. So it's really uh, my mission, I feel, is to get people up and look at this really incredible landscape, this, in, this uh, unique wa watershed and um, let people understand what wild and scenic is. But like you, to your point, you fly up the Crystal River and all of a sudden you're in the watershed. And you see that it's surrounded by all these wilderness areas and it's really pristine and uh, untrammeled uh, country and the water is pure and flowing. And, and that view that you have from above, putting all the different, uh, the different North Fork, the South Fork, the Middle Fork of the, of the uh, Crystal, actually just the North and South Fork. But uh, to see all that and to see how it all fits with the landscape, I think is pretty inspiring. And hopefully the people will get up there and say, this is unique. This is what I would like to do with it. And other people who have their um, concerns will learn more about what the a designation of wild and scenic really means. So it, it's a real forum for getting conversation started. It's a real, um, you know, the visual aspects are, are, are certainly stunning I'm sure. and very stimulating. You're way up at 14,000 feet looking over at these fellow 14ers up on the, in Colorado and these majestic valleys. And it's, uh, it's inspiring. It's still inspiring after doing it all these years for me. I love that. Um, can you walk us through kind of, you know, how you put a flight together? I know you mentioned that, um, you know, you take politicians and stakeholders. Is that something that you're organizing as EcoFlight or do people contact you? Yes. In both, in, yes. In both those instances, um, you know, we are, are active conservationists. We have a small staff. I mean, we're, we're pretty unique as how small we are and how much we do. But um, we have a staff that we look at these issues and we say, boy, this could really be positively impacted by the aerial perspective. Boy, we can uh, get people together and, and uh, have them learn more about this and educate themselves. And we've been doing this a while and, and uh, we're quite well known and the networking that we are able to provide is mm -hmm. really significant. 
And most people uh, have heard of us and they say, boy, there's an issue out here over the uh, Clark Fork River up in Montana that really, you know, there's a, there's a big copper mine and we want to get politicians and media up over that. And, and we need some photos. We don't have any photos of this. So can you come up and do that? So we respond in both ways and we initiate in both ways. We really are back and forth as far as uh, uh, which is, uh, like it's about 50-50 almost. We really, and as we've become, um, oh, I guess as the years have, have gone on, we've been able to initiate even more flights. But a good example would be, uh, I was flying up in Idaho and I get a call from National Geographic because mm. they want to photograph the floods that are up in Yellowstone that just happened. And so when that happens, um, I say, okay, I've got to go over there. And then I speak to some of the people that I know outside of Livingston, Montana, the, the, uh, the, one, of the, one of the organizations that has, deals with the community. And the community has been, was very negatively impacted by all those floods, obviously. They were very nervous about their economics. And I said, I'm going to be in the area. Uh, would you guys like to organize some flights and some people uh, and, and get up and see what's going on? And because of that, there was this huge community involvement. Over 50 people showed up, all kinds of manner of press and, uh, wow. and advocates about this area. And, you know, so one thing leads to the other and in and, uh, both ways, whether we, we go out and, and uh, you know, find an issue that we think we should fly for or others contact us or both sort of about 50-50 these days. Got it. And I know you mentioned um, that you're based in Colorado. Is that where you do the majority of your flights or are you all over? Well, I'm all over. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've lived here a long time in Aspen, Colorado and uh, back in the good old days, you know, uh, of Aspen, Colorado. But uh, it, with the airplane, it's a very expensive uh, tool to, to operate. So right. I, especially in the summers and the winters, our pilots go on these trips and we try to be as, as cost-effective as possible. So when I'm up in, uh, on my way to Boise, I'll fly in Wyoming for a few flights. I'll go, you know, a whole very intense schedule mm -hmm. and be gone for a week or 10 days at a time and, uh, and do a, a myriad of, of places and a myriad of issues during that. I was just recently up in uh, California and I started, I had some very important flights uh, actually down by you guys uh, with fire uh, mitigation right. and uh, also some of the water issues that you have mm -hmm. uh, by the o uh, Oakland Bay out there. And uh, so, you know, to build issues and, and flights around those places, I went up to the Klamath where we're working on, on the Snake River and dams that are gonna be removed and then sort of work my way down through Northern California, Southern California. So uh, on the go, based in Colorado, but our pilots, whenever we have a mission, we try to let people know by our calendar or calling people like I did with that Yellowstone and say, hey, I'm going to be in your area. Let's, uh, let's get up in the air. We think these issues need addressing. I love that. Very interesting. And can you speak a little bit to how you bring the conservation into these flights, um, include that as part of it? Are you having conversations while you're up in the air? Um, do you let it organically happen? Did you say conservation or conversation? I missed that. Well, both. <laughs> Conversations yeah, well, I call about it, conservation. Yeah, it, it, that's a good segue into my latest little iteration of conservation conversations in the cockpit. And <laughs> it. it's one of the things that, that I think um, is most 
interesting, inspiring, educational is the conversation that goes on. I mean, every flight is based on or around conservation. You know, how to, it's environmental work. And that's our, that's our mission. And uh, other, we fly other nonprofits and we'll fly, like I said, scientists, anyone that will benefit, but it has to deal with conservation in, in some way or another. And, you know, we'll get stakeholders uh, that, that think one way, we'll get people who um, think another way. And they'll have this back and forth in the airplane. And one of the things you can count on is that they're paying attention. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a small little airplane. We fly in some very wild places. And people are aware, they're thinking, and uh, they have great conversations. And then the, the product that we bring back afterwards, a series of photos, we have one of the most extensive photo libraries in the West, um, dealing with conservation and, and the landscapes. And now with the videos we're putting out and even the, the uh, social media um, that's coming out. So we're, we're trying to reach as many people as possible, trying to inspire them to educate themselves on these very important landscape and conservation issues and then to uh advocate for what they care about yeah i love that um and i noticed on your website too it looks like you work with a lot of indigenous communities um i'd love for you to speak to the importance of that yeah we uh you know thanks mostly to my wife janie who's now going to be taking over as the executive director and oh nice uh, and uh which is really great she's done some incredible work with uh, educational programs that we have for young adults we have Hmm. a real big student program that we do every year we call it fight across america and i got inspired by my friend john denver uh the late and great uh, songwriter and singer he was one of my best friends and wow uh, we always there's a whole story to that which is interesting but you know in memory of him every year we do student programs we're flying in our local valleys and other areas and a lot of the uh we work a lot with indigenous people you know with their with their student programs and Janie's brought on uh, so much more of our work in the west has to do with uh, native american because uh, all that land was native american lands right and conservation organizations these days are very cognizant of that and working very hard to uh be inclusive work with uh, underserved uh, communities and especially native american communities and a really good story about that and so well you know we do a lot of work on on because it's all tribal lands but a great story is that uh one of the uh foundations that we work with that really has us concentrate on tribal work and tribal landscapes. Um, so they, they usually give us you know, a grant hmm. and COVID happened. And so we said, wow, man, what are we gonna do? You know, we can't fly people right now. You know, we gotta think of something. And Janie comes up with this incredible idea. We also have a Native American on our board. And um, this was at a time when they were having a great deal of difficulty distributing PPE equipment. Mm. And the tribes were getting some, but it was all bogged down in uh, administrative stuff mm-hmm. and it wasn't getting to the people. So our Janie and our board members said, hey, here's an idea. They went to the foundation and they said, they said, uh, you know, let's let's get our grant like we usually do. And we will dedicate it to distributing PPE equipment. So I figured that that's a great idea. You know, there's a lot of tribes out here uh, relatively near us and send us some PPE equipment and I'll put it in a bag and I'll fly it around to some of these remote strips. 
Well, we're waiting for a shipment and they uh, give us a call and they say a shipment has arrived. And I say, oh, that's great. So I go to the uh, airport where they were going to deliver it and it's two huge FedEx trucks. Oh, wow. Got, they got a quarter of a million pieces of PPE equipment. And I go, oh my God, what are we going to do with this stuff? I can't put, you know, my little airplane. Right. I'm going to do this. So it was an incredible community endeavor. We got a whole bunch of volunteers, the uh, local FBO, which is called a fixed base operator that sells fuel to the, to the airplanes. They gave us their hangar. We took these uh, two huge trucks full of goods. We repackaged them. And I said, well, I'll be flying for the next two months. Right. <laughs> and I, I said, we, we need to get this stuff out there quickly. So I went on the ramp and I found 10 pilots who I know. And I said, would you guys be willing to volunteer and load up your planes and take these shipments out? Well, again, Janie did this incredible job organizing all these equipments to go to four different tribes, five different tribes which is, you know, hard to coordinate that to begin with. Right. And all these small little airstrips throughout the, the Southwest here. And we had 10 airplanes spending a couple of days delivering all this stuff. And it was a huge success and so much needed because, you know, all the other stuff was still in warehouses up at the uh, headquarters of some of the tribal, tribal offices. So, uh, we felt real good about that. And we've established some wonderful connections and working with the tribes is all about having those connections. So they've been calling on us uh, an awful lot for uh, some of their other conservation needs, especially up in the Klamath areas with the Snake River and the dams and, and salmon issues that are so mm. important to uh, the culture. That's awesome. Love that. I love how you, um, you know, pivoted during the pandemic to, to address needs. Yeah, and, that, was, that was cool. Yeah. Um, well, I'm sure you have so many stories, um, especially uh, you're probably privy to some pretty interesting conversations in that small uh, airplane, but I'd love to hear um, either like your favorite or like maybe one of the first stories after you started the EcoFlight of, um, well, you know. Obviously the, the whole thing, Everything in life is about a story. <laughs> um, you know, two, two stories that come to mind, you know, there's, there's sort of transformational in many ways. There's an issue that was going on ever since the uh, conception of conservation flying up in the Northern Rockies and right south of Glacier Bay, uh, no, not Glacier Bay, Glacier National Park is a place called the Rocky Mountain Front, which is essentially the same kind of landscape as Glacier Park but it doesn't have a national park protection. Mm. And through the years, uh, oil and gas leases were starting to happen up there, even though when you started to learn more about it, there was not a lot of resource up there. It wasn't really about oil and gas. It was, you know, trying to just lease land and, you know, in case it was discovered, have that lease. Anyway, it went through maybe 20 years or so of uh, different forest managers and other people and, and the people of, a town called Shoto near Great Falls on the eastern slopes of the Rocky Mountain Front, some of the most wild country in, in our, our United States. Anyway, there, you know, there was a sort of an ideological bias against wilderness and protecting some of this land and getting rid of some of these oil and gas wells, which were really right in the middle of pristine grizzly bear habitat mm. and elk and real um, wildlife uh, 
sanctuaries, if you will, really special landscapes. So all these different coalitions were forming. I mean, it was interesting to have the environmentalists working with the farmers, working with the outfitters, you know, really educational uh, um, coalitions. Anyway, this one radio host, he was a very, very popular guy. And he was uh, taking an aside that he said he really didn't want to see these designations and land protections and felt mm -hmm. like, you know, we all need oil and gas. And, you know, that is true. In many instances, uh, I personally feel that we're not against oil and gas, but we feel strongly it can and must be done properly. And there's certain places maybe you shouldn't do it. And if there is are certain places you shouldn't do it, that is certainly one of them. It's just like Glacier Park. Anyway, long story short, the guy is uh, you know, you know, rallying people against this proposal, hmm. and so we targeted him <clears throat> and took him up in the air. And he really said, "Boy, I've never been up in the air. I've never seen." just how wonderful this is, even though he's lived there a long time, most, most of his life. And so in the conversation in the cockpit, you know, I asked him, I leaned over, I said, well, what, what don't you like about this proposal? What, how would you like to see this land? And he goes, well, I want to keep it just the way it is. <laughs> and, you know, the experts all would explain to him, I said, this is the best way to do that. And he completely changed his tune and had that uh, sort of epiphany uh, experience expressed on the airways and uh, helped turn that into a huge victory where the Rocky Mountain Front was protected. So oh, that's awesome. It was one really cool story. And another cool story I, I think is really cool is that um, so Janie and I are up uh, at a grizzly bear conference up in, again up in the, uh, the north, up in uh, Montana. And they're talking about, you know, what the grizzly bear eats and they're sort of on the endangered species list or, or getting close to that. They're really endangered in many ways. And on the way home, Janie and I are flying home and Janie takes a picture. We look over way out to on the horizon is this whole grove of really red trees. Hmm. And we go, man, that's really unusual. What the hell is that? So we get back and we mull it over and we, we remembered that, um, you know what it's like here in Colorado that we've had this uh, this pine beetle infestation which hmm. turns all the trees red and it because of drought weakens them and kills them and then of course you've got huge fire danger down here because of right that. so we're looking at it up there and we show it to uh, to a, a famous uh, a conservationist named Louisa Wilcox, and she talks to her grizzly bear guys and some of the other forest management people of the Forest Service, and they go, oh my God, those are trees that are infested with the beetle, and we've never had that up here, hmm. and it turns out that the, there's a species called the white bark pine, and it only grows above 8,000 feet, and it's all over the greater Yellowstone ecosystem, but it's never had a beetle infection because, uh, you know, epidemic, if you will, because it grows over 8,000 feet. And what kills these beetles are really cold, severe winters. So oh, we've always had cold, severe winters, and that stops the beetle in its tracks. But down here in Colorado, because of climate change, you know, we have, we don't get those 30 degree below zero weather anymore. It doesn't kill them. Mm. And it was the first harbinger for me to, you know, real proof that, boy, there really is climate change. It's happening up there. Right. But the, the most interesting part of the story for me is that the white bark pine has a symbiotic relationship with the grizzly bear. 
And hmm. there's all kinds of, uh, as you learn more about this, the, uh, the, the, uh, the, is, there's a bird up there, the Clark, the Clark's fork, and it picks the, 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 the nuts and puts them on the ground. And the squirrel comes in and huddles them up for the winter and buries them. And then the grizzly bear, it's called the Clark's fork, uh, Clark's fork, uh, woodpecker, I guess, something like that. I'm sorry, I don't have it exactly. Anyway, the squirrel, uh, you know, buries it for getting ready for its winter stash. And then the grizzly bear, just before it goes to hibernates, goes through that stash and eats these nuts, which have some of the best nutrients and fat available for a grizzly bear. They actually sustain the grizzly bears that help mm, during the winter. And so it turns out that uh, we end up doing a greater Yellowstone ecosystem survey and that 80% of these trees are devastated and oh, going to go away. And because of that finding, here they were trying to decide whether or not to put the grizzly bear on the endangered species list. And because that it was going to have some real hardships because of the lack of the, of the uh, white bark pine, uh, it stayed on the endangered species list. So that's a long hauling story with a lot of different, uh, I think, interesting aspects that yeah. kept the grizzly bear on the endangered species list and saved it for a few more years. Yeah, so no, that's a, but, uh, yeah. A big success. And that's really interesting. I mean, obviously, when we think about, um, you know, environmental protection, the ecosystem is just such a like fine balance that when something's taken out, um, it can affect so much. I'm curious to like you, you mentioned that this is your 20th um, anniversary of the organization. Um, just in your perspective, how much things have changed in the last 20 years as far as like climate change? Is it how, you know, drastic does it look from from up in in the plane yeah i think you could hit the right word drastic drastic it is incredibly drastic and and very scary when you start to think about why it's not just a visual when i'm flying up by the glacier national park mm. and looking at photos that i took 20 years ago and looking at them that i took you last year and the glaciers half gone, if not more than half gone. Flying with National Geographic just a month or so ago, right. flying over Lake Mead and Lake Powell, where that uh, reservoir is 24% of what it used to be, to the point where, so it's not just a visual, but to the point where they may have to shut down the turbines that generate the electricity because they have a lack of water. To go fly over Southern Utah, over the, uh, the power plants that were there and, and think back and look at the photos on our gallery, you know, clear, pristine blue skies to, to a, a, you know, vastly different uh, skyscape, if you will, if that's a word. Right. But, um, yeah, it's very, very noticeable. The rivers and streams, there's a phenomenon over here, here outside of Aspen in the ski areas, which are so important, of course, for uh, an industry, for skiing, right. or for um, our snowpack, which goes down into the Colorado River, which provides the water for everywhere west of here. So because of a lot of, um, of the climate change, very dry uh, springs with huge winds and mm -hmm. a lot of um, disturbances on the land in Utah from resource extraction. We now have a phenomenon called red dust, which which is uh, covers the snowpack. So in the springtime or during these kinds of storms, you get a dust storms and it lays down a, a, a series of, of you know red dust 
you know, and this red dust is not just, again, not a, a bad site, but it exacerbates the runoff. So all of a sudden we've had a relatively normal snowpack this year. We had the, the, one of the earliest runoffs and peak, um, peak runoffs of the rivers we've ever had. And consequently, we're left with a semi-drought situation again, and where we had almost a normal snowpack. So right. all these, these factors contribute and all these factors are very well documented and seen from the air. Yeah, it is so important, the work that you're doing of, of documenting it all and getting it out there because many of us are here on the ground and not really seeing that um, big picture. Yeah, yeah. Um, something that was on my mind, I definitely want to let you speak to is obviously, um, you know, and I saw it on, just on your website, the carbon footprint of flying and how you're addressing that. Well, it's a challenge and we, we uh, contribute to offset our carbon. You know, we'd certainly like, like there to be more uh, um, options for flying an airplane. Right. Uh, we feel that uh, what we do offsets it just in a, uh, in, in a, in a way uh, of providing the information and everything else, but we're very aware of it. And we do, we make uh, contributions and other things to offset our footprint whenever possible. Airplane is an airplane. And like I said, we're, you know, we are, we use it, we use oil and gas. So we're not against this, but we feel a cannon must be done properly. And, and as we're moving into more renewables and alternatives, um, we're excited about the possibilities of, of using, um, you know, re, you know, more energy efficient and different types of, of aircraft. And to that point, we, we do uh, more and more drone work whenever mm -hmm. we can. So we utilize a drone, giving that aerial perspective. Nice. Well, I would love to hear, um, I know you're celebrating your 20th anniversary, um, just thinking towards the future, what you're excited for at EcoFlight and um, what you have yeah, planned. We, we, uh, we are excited because, you know, technology has made, you know, just as an example, I was pretty average photographer. All of a sudden, I'm a pretty darn good photographer <laughs> with, with Photoshop and all that kind of stuff. But you know, we, we are very small. We want to keep ourselves very small and, and hard hitting as we are, but we're, we're very much working, you know, with, with uh, tribal communities these days. We're, we're very much targeting people who have, don't have some of the opportunities uh, that we've had. We feel, you know, drone work is something I'm excited about, but, you know, we're dealing with water and, and uranium and, and other things that are coming to the foreflight, forefront because of the, the challenges that we have with climate change. And so I'm excited about that change of a little bit of shift in, in some of our focus for conservation and those issues. And I'm also excited about, you know, this, this social media that being able to reach more people and get more people understanding what uh, these perspectives are, what the issues are, and really trying to encourage them even more to have a voice in, uh, in what's going on. We like to say at EcoFlight that we give the land a voice by, by showing them the images, et cetera, from above. But even more importantly, we want uh, our passengers to have a voice and really mm -hmm. you know, you know, spread the word and, and encourage people to educate themselves on what is going on our, our landscapes, which as you point out, with the changing of our climate have provided us uh, with even more challenges than, than we have ordinarily. Right, yeah, I love that. Um, 
And I also want to ask you, what advice do you have for someone who um, might be thinking of starting their own organization? Yeah, that's that's a, a, an excellent question. I, I'm not sure if I'm the right person to answer that in, <laughs> in the traditional way. Um, everything I've been able to do has been, I think, a result of, of a passion for what you care about, mm -hmm. a, a, a real... Um, commitment to to something that that you that you that you you do just getting back to uh what uh what they talked about what i think it was doug tompkins or revanche or whatever you know caring about places that you are that you play in that you that you do i mean and that you know that should go for anybody where they live you know care about where you live and if you care enough you figure out you know what you want to do about that so i so i guess if you want to pertain to any nonprofit, which is for the most part, a, a an act of love. You know, you're not going to get rich doing a nonprofit. Right. And, uh, some of the traditional business models, um, I certainly don't much don't know much about that, to be honest with you. But what we've done really worked, and it is because I think of our care and our commitment and our passion. Yeah, I love that. Um, definitely want to give you a chance to let um, listeners know how they can help EcoFlight and get involved and where to find you. Yeah, well, easiest answer to that question is where to find us. We're on the internet. <laughs> We're uh, ecoflight.org. We are a membership organization and uh, we are a nonprofit. So, you know, those are those some of the things that mostly can really help us. Um, you know, we it, it, funding for these organizations is always hard. And when you're small, you know, you're wearing all these different hats. So you're not only yeah. looking at the issues as a conservationist and really trying to figure out how you can have the greatest impact, but you're all going, always going out and searching for dollars. People say with airplanes, what makes an airplane fly? Is it lift? Is it drag? Aerodynamics? And the answer, the short answer is it's money. <laughs> uh, you, you need the money to put in the gas and the gas is just ridiculous right now yeah it's sort of outrageous in many ways i don't understand it but um so that there's that of course and there's other uh, obviously ways to please get on our website see the issues we're involved in see where you live call us get in touch with us if you have an issue that we can help with something that you care about uh other organizations that need to hear uh, from us or how we can help them. That's what, that's what we do. We're here to help. We're here to serve. And, uh, you know, obviously you can't do that without the funding and you can't do that without you know, memberships and people who care. And that caring again, gets back to educating yourself and advocating for what you do care about. And can you speak more about the memberships? Are those like memberships for people who are flying with you or how does that membership? Yeah, we work? ask everybody to join uh, people that fly with us. It's, it's mostly, a, you know, just a, a show of, of support and it's like $35 or something like that and get on our mailing list, our images and just uh, be part of the EcoFlight community pretty much. So we encourage nice. people to get on that website and uh, take a look at what we do and and uh, just talk to us with whatever concerns you may have or how we can help. I love that. Wonderful. Well, um, we always end all the interviews with rapid fire questions, which are just fun personal questions, um, if you're ready. Maybe. <laughs> um, your favorite place in the world and be as specific as possible. I feel like that's going to be a fun one for you. 
Well, that, that's an impossible one for me. You've been I all over. <laughs> so blessed that I've been so many wonderful places. So I'll answer that with being up in the, uh, up in the uh, slip the surly bonds of earth. In the and, cockpit. Uh, and I've, I've rocketed upward and danced on silver, uh, silver, smiling silver wings. And upward I've climbed into the tumbling mirth and done a thousand things you never thought of. So, I love it. <laughs> that's a, a, one of those poems that inspires me every day. I didn't say it quite right either. Well, it sounded beautiful. Um, the last book that you read. Oh, God. He really are putting me on the spot. <laughs> um, James Joyce, Ulysses. Nice. Um, and then one fa fun fact about you. One fun, fun fact about me. I like to laugh at myself. It's important. Find humor throughout the day. Um, and then the last one is your favorite quote, which I feel like you already gave us a sample of earlier. Yeah, I slipped the surly bonds of earth and and uh, danced on laughter's silver wings. Upward I've climbed through the tumbling mirth and done a thousand things I've never dreamed of. Love it. That, that I got right. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, Bruce. I really appreciate this conversation. Well, it's nice to talk to you. Thanks for reaching out. Thank you so much for listening to Waves of Change podcast. I'm your host, Lizzie Lara. I would love if you would follow or subscribe our podcast, or would you leave a rating or review? Five stars is our favorite. That would help others find us and we'd really appreciate it. If you are active on social media, please follow us at Waves of Change podcast on Instagram. Even more, if you would share this episode on your stories, that would be wonderful. If you have suggestions or want to recommend an organization I should interview, email us at wavesofchangepodpod at gmail.com. Thank you. I'll see you next time.